Section 32 of France in the 19th Century. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. France in the 19th Century by Elizabeth Latimer. Chapter 18. The Formation of the Third Republic, Part 2. The Assembly had been three days in session, clamorous, riotous, and full of words, when in the middle of the afternoon of February 16, 1871, two delegates from Alsace and Lorraine appeared, supported by Gambetta. The Speaker, that is the President of the Assembly, was M. Jules Grévy, who had held the same office in 1848. He found it hard to restrain the excitement of the deputies. The delegates came to implore France not to deliver them over to the Germans, to remember that of all Frenchmen the Alsatians had been the most French in the days of the Revolution, and that in all the wars of France for more than a century they had suffered the most of all her children. No wonder the hearts of all in the assembly were stirred. Quote, At this moment there appeared in the middle aisle of the theatre a small man, with wrinkled face and stubbly white hair. He seemed to have got there by magic, for no one had seen him spring into that place. He looked around him for an instant, much as a sailor glances over the sky in a storm, then, stretching out his short right arm, he made a curious downstroke which conveyed an impression of intense vitality and will. Profound silence was established in a moment. The elderly man then made another gesture, throwing his arm up, as if to say, Good, now you will listen. He then, in a thin, piping, but distinctly audible voice, began a sharp practical address. Everyone listened with the utmost attention, none dared to interrupt him. He spoke for five minutes, nervously pounding the air from time to time, and sometimes howling his words at the listeners in a manner that made them cringe. He counseled moderation, accord, decency, but above all, instant action. The settlement of the Alsace-Lorraine question, said he, will virtually decide whether we have peace or continued war with Prussia. Then, with an imperious gesture of command, he turned away. Come, he said, let us to our committee rooms, and let us say what we think. Two hours later, the committee appointed to recommend a chief of the executive power announced that its choice had fallen on this orator, M. Thiers. At once he was proclaimed head of the French Republic, but not before he had hurried out of the theatre. Then the session closed, and a quarter of an hour after, Lord Lyons, the English ambassador, had waited on M. Thiers to inform him that Her Majesty's government recognized the French Republic. From that moment, for more than two years, M. Thiers was the supreme ruler of France. His work was visible in every department of administration. Ministers, while his power lasted, simply obeyed his commands. There were some amusing, gossipy stories told in Bordeaux of Thiers' entrance into possession of Gambetta's bachelor quarters at the prefecture. Quote, Pah, what a smell of tobacco, he is said to have cried, as he strutted into his deposed rival's study. All his family joined him in bewailing the condition of the house, and until it could be cleansed and purified, they were glad to accept an invitation to take refuge in the archbishop's palace. In a few days all was put to rights, and a guard of honour was set to keep off intruders on the chief's privacy. On the first day of this arrangement M. Thiers addressed some question to the sentinel. The man was for a moment embarrassed how to answer him. M. Thiers was for the time the chief executive officer of the Republic, but he was not formally its president. The soldier's answer, quote, Oui, mon exécutif, caused much amusement. At this time there was no suspicion in men's minds that it was the intention of M. Thiers to form a permanent republic. The feeling of the country was royalist. The difficulty was what royalty? It seemed to all men, and very probably to Thiers himself, that that question would be answered in favour of Henri V, the Comte de Chambord. 
gambetta resigning his power without a word retired to san sebastian just over the spanish frontier there he lived in two small rooms over a crockery shop Quote, he is jaded for want of sleep writes a friend and distressed by money matters much of his time he spent in fishing no doubt meditating deeply on things present past and future no pains were spared to induce him to give in his adhesion to one of the candidates for royalty his best friend wrote thus to him quote, those wretches the communists have destroyed all my illusions but perhaps i could have forgiven them but for their ingratitude to you see how their newspapers have reviled you a time may come when a republic may be possible in france but that day is not with us yet let us acknowledge that we have both made a mistake as for you with your unrivalled genius you have now a patriotic career open before you if you will cast in your lot with the men who are now going to try and quell anarchy besides this offers were made him of the prime ministership a dukedom a grand cordon and other preferment but gambetta only laughed at these proposals he was a man who had many faults but he was always honest and true both he and m thiers were devoted frenchmen patriots in the truest sense of the word and each took opposite views that thiers was right has been proved by time on march sixteenth the government of the provisional republic removed from bordeaux to versailles nobody dreamed of the pending outbreak of the commune all the talk was a fusion between the elder bourbon branch and the house of orleans thiers was decidedly opposed to taking the seat of government to paris nor did he wish a new election for an assembly he preferred fontainebleau for the seat of government but fortunately looking at the matter in the light of events versailles was chosen then to the great indignation of madame thiers the royalists at once took measures to prevent m thiers from installing himself in louis the fourteenth's great bedchamber quote, the chateau they said was to become the abode of the national legislature the state rooms must be devoted to the use of members and the private apartments should be occupied by m grevy the president of the assembly Quote, m thiers would no doubt have liked very much to sleep in louis the fourteenth's bed and to have for his study that fine room with the balcony from which the heralds used to announce in the same breath the death of one king and the accession of another his secretary could not help saying that it seemed fit that the greatest of french national historians should be lodged in the apartments of the greatest of french kings but as this idea did not make its way monsieur and madame thiers yielded the point saying that the chimneys smoked and that the rooms were too large to be comfortable on seeing a caricature in which some artist had represented him as a ridiculous pygmy crowned with a cotton nightcap and lying in an enormous bed surrounded by the majestic ghosts of kings thiers was at first half angry then he said quote, louis the fourteenth was not taller than i and as to his other greatness i doubt whether he ever would have had a chance of sleeping in the best bed of versailles if he had begun life as i did so m thiers went to reside where the emperor william had had his quarters at the prefecture of versailles and soon the palace was filled with refugees from paris many of the state apartments were turned into hospital wards louis the fourteenth's bedchamber was given up to the finance committee the thing to be done with speed and energy as all men felt was to re-besiege paris and put down the commune all parties united in this work but the conservatives confidently believed that when this was done thiers and the moderate republicans would join them in giving france a stable government under the comte de chambord on september nineteenth eighteen twenty one when that young prince was a year old a public subscription throughout france had presented him with the beautiful old chateau de chambord built on the loire by francis i and from which he adopted his title when in exile after the young prince had been removed from his mother's influence
he was carefully brought up in the most bourbon of bourbon traditions when he became a man he travelled extensively in europe in eighteen forty one he broke his leg by falling from his horse and was slightly lame for the rest of his life in eighteen forty six he married marie therese beatrix of modena who was even more strictly bourbon than himself he and his wife retired to Frusdorf, a beautiful country-seat not very far from vienna there they were constantly visited by travelling frenchmen of all parties and on no one did the prince fail to make a favourable impression he was good upright cultivated kindly but inflexibly wedded to the traditions of his family he loved france with his whole soul and was glad of anything that brought her good and glory but france was his his by divine right and this right france must acknowledge after that there was not anything he would not do for her but france was not willing to efface all her history from seventeen ninety two to eighteen seventy one with the exception of the episode of the restoration when school histories were circulated mentioning marengo austerlitz etc as victories gained under the king's lieutenant-general m de bonaparte during the empire under napoleon the third the comte de chambord had remained nearly passive at Fruisdorf. his life was passed in meditation devotion the cultivation of literary tastes and a keen interest in all the events that were passing in his native country during the franco-prussian war he sent words of encouragement to his suffering countrymen and nobly refrained from embarrassing the affairs of france by any personal intrigues but when the war and the commune were over and his chances of the throne grew bright he issued a proclamation which has been called quote, an act of political suicide on may three three weeks before the downfall of the commune he put forth his first manifesto here is what an english paper said of it a few days before his next the suicidal proclamation appeared quote, the comte de chambord does not of course surrender his own theory of his own place on earth but he does offer some grave pledges intended to diminish suspicion as to the deduction he draws from his claim to be king by right divine he renounces formally and distinctly any intention of exercising absolute power and pledges himself as he says to submit all acts of his government to the careful control of representatives freely elected he declares that if restored he will not interfere with equality or attempt to establish privileges he promises complete amnesty and employment under his government to men of all parties and finally he pledges himself to secure effectual guarantees for the pope then trembling on his temporal throne in italy the english journalist continues quote, the tone of this whole paper is that of a man who believes that a movement will be made in his favour which may succeed if only the factions most likely to resist can be temporarily conciliated there is no especial reason that we can see that he should not be chosen he has neither sympathized with the germans nor received support from them he has not bombarded paris he is not more hated than any other king would be perhaps less for paris has no gossip to tell of his career indeed there are powerful reasons in favour of the choice his restoration since the comte de paris is his heir would eliminate two of the dynastic parties which distract france and would relink the broken chain of history to a people so weary so dispirited so thirsty for repose that of itself must have a certain charm but all these advantages he destroyed for himself by a new proclamation issued five weeks later in it he said quote, i can neither forget that the monarchical right is the patrimony of the nation nor decline the duties which it imposes on me i will fulfil these duties believe me on my word as an honest man and as a king so far was good but proceeding to announce that thenceforward he assumed the title of henri v he goes on to apostrophize the white flag of the bourbons he says quote, 
I received it as a sacred trust from the old king my grandfather when he was dying in exile. It has always been for me inseparable from the remembrance of my absent country. It waved above my cradle, and I wished to have it shade my tomb. Henri V cannot abandon the white flag of Henri IV. This manifesto, written without consulting those who were working for his cause in France, settled the question of his eligibility. France was not willing, for the sake of Henri V, to give up her tricolore, the flag of so many memories. Its loss had been the bitterest humiliation that the nation had had to suffer at the Restoration. The Comte de Chambord's own friends were cruelly disappointed. The moderate Republicans, who had been ready to accept him as a constitutional monarch, said at once that he was far too Bourbon. There was no longer any hope unless he could be persuaded, on some other convenient occasion, to renounce the white flag. This matter being settled by the Comte de Chambord himself, all M. Thiers' attention was turned to two things, the disposal of the Communist prisoners, and the payment of the indemnity demanded by the Germans, the five milliards. We are glad to know that Thiers disapproved of the revengeful feeling that pervaded politicians and society regarding the Communist prisoners. He tried to save General Rossel and failed. Rochefort and others he protected. He wished for a general amnesty, excluding only the murderers of Thomas, Lecomte, and the hostages. He said when someone was speaking to him of the sufferings of those communists, or supposed communists, who were confined at Satory and in the Orangerie at Versailles, quote, It was dreadful, but it could not be avoided. We had twenty thousand prisoners, and not more than four hundred police to keep guard over them. We had to depend on the rough methods of an exasperated soldiery. As to the indemnity, the promptness with which it was paid was marvellous. The great bankers all over Europe, especially those of Jewish connection, came forward and advanced the money. In eighteen months the five milliards of francs were in the coffers of the Emperor William, and the last Prussian soldier had quitted the soil of France. The loan raised by the government for the repayment of the sums advanced for the indemnity was taken up with enthusiasm by all classes of the French people. The horrible year of 1871 was followed by one of perfect peace and great prosperity. The title of President of the French Republic was conferred on M. Thiers for seven years. Quote, the nation seemed reflowering like a large plantation in a spring which follows a hard winter. Trade revived. The traces of war and civil strife were effaced with amazing promptness from the streets of Paris. The army and all public services were reorganized, and to crown these blessings, the land yielded such a harvest as had not been seen for half a century. M. Thiers was never much addicted to religious emotion, but when, on a Sunday in July 1872, the news came to him by telegram of the glorious ingathering of the harvest of the south of France, he was quite overcome. Quote, Let us thank God, he cried, clasping his hands. He has heard us. Our mourning is ended. End quote. M. Thiers was by that time living in Paris in the Élysée. He had continued to reside at the prefecture of Versailles while the assembly was in session, but he came to the Élysée during its recess, and kept a certain state there. Yet he never would submit himself to the restraints of etiquette. One who knew him well says, quote, He was bourgeois to the fingertips. His character was a curious effervescing mixture of talent, learning, vanity, childish petulance, inquisitiveness, sagacity, ecstatic patriotism, and ambition. He was a splendid orator, with the voice of an old coster-woman a savant with the presumption of a schoolboy, a kind-hearted man with the irritability of a monkey, a masterly administrator with that irresistible tendency to intermeddle with everything which is intolerable to subordinates, yet a sincere love of liberty with the instincts of a despot." 
M. Thiers had during his long life been a collector of pictures, bronzes, books, manuscripts, and curious relics. His house in the Place Saint-Georges was a museum of these treasures, but a museum so arranged that it contributed to sociability and the enjoyment of his visitors. He had acquired this taste for collecting in his early days at Esch. During the Commune his house was raised to the ground, not one stone being left upon another. When the Commune put forth its decree for this act of vandalism, Thiers' consternation was pathetic. The ladies of his family did everything that feminine energy and ingenuity could suggest to avert the calamity. But when the destruction had taken place, Thiers bore his loss with dignity. His collections were very fine, but he had always been afraid of their being damaged, and did not show them to strangers. When the Commune sent the painter Courbet to appraise their value, he estimated the bronzes alone at three hundred thousand dollars. M. Thiers' collection of Persian, Chinese, and Japanese curios was also almost unique. After the overthrow of the Commune, Madame Thiers and her sister did their utmost to recover such of these treasures as had passed into the hands of dealers. Many of these men gave back their purchases, and none demanded extravagant prices. A great deal was recovered, and the house on the Place Saint-Georges was rebuilt at the public cost. It was on the 5th of September, 1872, that the last German soldier quitted France, and the five milliards of francs, in our money a thousand millions of dollars, had been paid. I borrow the words of another writer speaking of this supreme effort on the part of France. Quote, After the most frightful defeat of modern times, with one-third of her territory in the enemy's hands, with her capital in insurrection, and her available army all required to restore order, France, in eighteen months, paid a fine equal to one-fourth of the English national debt, elected a bourgeois of genius to her head, obeyed him on points on which she disagreed with him, and endured a foreign occupation without giving one single pretext for real severity. The people of France had no visible chiefs. The only two men who rose to the occasion were M. Thiers and Gambetta. If M. Thiers showed tact, wisdom, and, above all, courage and firmness, in probably the most difficult position in which man was ever placed, surely we may pause to admire Gambetta. Daring in all things, under the empire he denounced Napoleonism, and by his eloquence and courage he guided timid millions and rival factions from the day when Napoleon III was deposed. Under the empire he had yearned to restore the true life of the nation. When the empire was overturned he could not believe that that life was impaired. He thought it would be easy for France to rise as one man and drive out the invader. As each terrible defeat was experienced, he regarded it as only a momentary reverse. Yet such abounding faith in his cause, the cause of France, the cause of French republicanism, that he could not believe in failure. Of course, to have been a more clear-sighted statesman like M. Thiers would have been best, but there is something very noble in the blind zeal of this disappointed man." It moves one to pity to think of Gambetta weeping in the streets of Bordeaux, as we are told he did when the bitter news of the surrender of Paris made all his labours useless, and dashed to the ground his cherished hopes. Without one word to trouble the flow of events that were taking a course contrary to all his expectations, he resigned his dictatorship when it could no longer be of service to his country, and took himself out of the way of intrigues in his favour, passing over the Spanish frontier. As soon as the Germans were out of France, M. Thiers also was prepared to resign his power. He called a national assembly to determine the form of government. There were several points of primary importance to be settled at once. First, should France be a monarchy or a republic? That she would again become a monarchy was generally anticipated, but the Comte de Chambord had, as we have seen, forfeited his chances for the moment. If France were a republic, who should be her president? Should there be a vice-president? Should the president be elected by the chamber, or by a vote of the people? 
should there be one chamber or two m thiers was opposed to having any vice-president and was in favour of two chambers he vehemently urged the continuance of the republic saying that a monarchy was impossible there was but one throne and there were three dynasties to dispute it on one occasion he said quote, gentlemen i am an old disciple of the monarchy he was probably alluding to the opinions which his mother and his grandmother had endeavoured to instil into him i am what is called a monarchist who practises republicanism for two reasons first because he agreed to do so secondly because practically he can do nothing else the assembly proclaimed the continuance of the republic and likewise the continuance of m thiers as its president for seven years on several occasions after this m thiers carried his point with the assembly by threatening to resign and as the assembly was quite aware how difficult it would be to put any one in his place the threat always resulted in his victory the immediate cause which led to the fall of m thiers on may twenty fourth eighteen seventy three after he had sat for two years and a month in the presidential chair was a dispute concerning the election of m charles de remusat son of the lady who has given her memoirs to the world m de remusat was the government candidate for a deputyship vacant in the paris representation he was at the time thiers minister for foreign affairs a personal friend of the president a distinguished man of letters and an old orleanist converted to republicanism the opposing candidate was m barodet a radical of extreme opinions the monarchists also brought forward their candidate he had only twenty-seven thousand votes but these succeeded in defeating m de remusat who had one hundred and thirty-five thousand while the radicals voted solidly for barodet giving him one hundred and fifty-five thousand the blame of this defeat was thrown on m thiers the monarchists who had once called him quote, that illustrious statesman end quote, now spoke of him as quote, a fatal old man end quote. they attacked him in the assembly the radicals supported them m thiers was defeated on some measure that he wished should pass and sent in his resignation it was accepted by three hundred and sixty-two votes against three hundred and forty-eight he had fallen and yet a plebiscite throughout the country would have given a large popular vote in favour of the man quote, who had found france defeated her richest provinces occupied her capital in the hands of savages and had concluded peace and restored order and found the stupendous sum required for the liberation and organization of the country founding the republic and bringing order and prosperity back once more end quote. indeed the peasants even credited him with their good harvests and the revival of spirit in the army till they almost felt for him a sentiment of personal loyalty expelled from power when seventy-eight years of age m thiers retired to a little sunny dusty entresol on the boulevard malesherbes where the noise and glare greatly disturbed him at tours in the lull of events before the surrender of paris he had collected books and studied botany as soon as he was installed in the boulevard malesherbes he asked le verrier the astronomer to continue with him the astronomical studies with which at versailles he had indulged himself in brief moments of leisure remarking that he had seen a good deal of the perversity of mankind and that he now wished to refresh himself with the orderly works of god shortly after this he removed to better quarters where his rooms opened on a garden in this garden he received his friends on sunday mornings from seven to nine attired in a wadded brown cashmere dressing-gown a broad-brimmed hat a black cravat patent leather shoes and black gaiters as he talked he held his magnifying-glass in his hand ready to examine any insect or blade of grass that might come under observation one more great service he rendered to his country prince bismarck alarmed by the state of things in france showed symptoms of intending to seize belfort that fortress of the vosges which had never surrendered to the germans and which france had been permitted to retain 
Thiers induced Russia to intervene, and went to Switzerland to thank Prince Gorchakoff personally for his services on the occasion. Thiers died at Saint-Germain four years after his downfall, at the age of eighty-two. His last earthly lodging was in the pavillon Henri IV, now an hotel, where Louis XIV was born. By his will he left the state not only all his collections, which so far as possible he had restored, but the numerous historical materials which he had gathered for his works, as well as his house, after his wife's death, in the Place Saint-Georges. The collections are there as he left them, the historical documents have been removed to the archives. To Marseille, his native city, he left his watercolour copies of the chief works of the great masters in Italy. Thiers was childless. Whatever may have been the personal relations in which he stood to his wife, no woman was ever more truly devoted to the interests of her husband. She seems to have lived but for him. People in society laughed at her plain dressing and her careful housekeeping, but, quote, her heart dilated with gladness when she felt that the eyes of the world were fixed with admiration on M. Thiers, end quote. Her manner to him was that of a careful and idolizing nurse, his to her too often that of a petulant child. She always called him Monsieur Thiers. He always addressed her as Madame Thiers. Indeed, he is almost unknown by his name of Adolphe, nor do men often speak of him simply as Thiers. Monsieur Thiers he was, and will always be in history, whose tribunal he said he was not afraid to face. Even his cards were, contrary to French custom, always printed Monsieur Thiers. Both Monsieur and Madame Thiers were very early risers, and both had an inconvenient habit of falling asleep at inopportune times. To the last, Madame Thiers took a loving interest in Belfort, because her husband had saved it from the Germans. Its poor were objects of her especial solicitude. Only an hour before her death, hearing that the maire of Belfort had called, she expressed a wish to see him, and endeavoured to address him, pointing to a bust of Monsieur Thiers. But she was unable to make herself understood. Her powers of speech had failed her. Two rules M. Thiers had never departed from. One was, as he said himself, quote, to defend ferociously the public purse, end quote. The other, never to give house-room to any but first-rate objects of art. Some of his pictures were very dear to him. Several of his bronzes, which were pillaged by the commune and never recovered, were mourned by him as if they had been his friends. He had been wont to call them, quote, the schoolmasters of his soul, end quote. End of chapter 18 End of section 32